Please be seated and take God's word. Turn to Mark 2. Mark chapter 2. I am here today to bring you an urgent message from the word of truth. We are in a verse-by-verse expository series on the second synoptic gospel. This Lord's Day, we will focus our attention on Mark 2, verses 13 and 14. The title of the message today is, in the form of a question, it's, Are You Converted? Are You Converted? I want to begin by reading the uh, verses I mentioned, verses 13 and 14 of Mark chapter 2. And acquaint ourselves with what God would have us learn this morning. Mark 2, verse 13. And he, referring to Jesus, went out again by the seashore. And all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. In the two previous messages, we discovered a very important truth. Actually, we discovered three important truths. The first is this. Faith, not works, is required for salvation. Second, we discovered that one cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. Now, that's a tweet for you right there. You cannot be wrong about Jesus and right with God. Third, we discovered that Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. Emphasis on forgive. The biblical doctrine of forgiveness is vital to your understanding of the gospel itself. Allow me to illustrate why it's so vital for you to understand accurately God's forgiveness extended to sinners by grace through faith. A number of years ago, after preaching on the good news of forgiveness, a preacher went out to lunch with several families after church. Among that particular group that day, There was a newly converted mother of a missionary. This kind elderly woman had a genuine question for the preacher. She said this, preacher, you said when God forgives, he forgives all sin for the rest of your life. The preacher said, yes, ma'am, that's true. She said, If you tell someone that, aren't you afraid that they will live in sin for the rest of their life? And now being the wise old preacher he was, he took that as a teachable moment. And here's how he responded. He said, ma'am, the doctrine of forgiveness of sin is inseparably bound with 50 other doctrines. One of which is the doctrine of conversion. The only one who has been forgiven has been converted. The one who has been genuinely converted does not 
live in sin. Conversion is what is in view in Mark 2, 13 and 14. In this passage, we see very vividly a brief picture of what it looks like to be converted to Christ. Now, the universal truth is this. All men and women and children need to experience genuine conversion. The need to be converted has been man's greatest need since Eve took that first bite in the garden. From then to the time of the patriarchs, to the time of Jesus and the apostles, to now, everyone must convert or be in for a rude awakening on that final day. So the obvious question for all of us today is this. Have you been converted? Have you been converted? Now, in order to answer that question faithfully, truthfully, and with a clear conscience, we need to have a crystal clear understanding of what conversion is. So listen, this is important. Conversion can be defined in this way. It is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Let me repeat that. Conversion, the doctrine of conversion, is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. So conversion, conversion must not be confused with, 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 with regeneration, which comes after election and calling. Regeneration is the secret and sovereign act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. And it precedes conversion. We are born from above, John 3. And then we are enabled by the Spirit to respond to the command to follow Christ. So, now that we're all on the same page with regard to the doctrine of conversion, we must focus our attention on our text for today. In Mark 2, 13 and 14, we see an example of a man being radically converted to Christ. And by understanding this man's background, you will see why I say this was a radical conversion. The renowned British preacher J.C. Ryle claims this. We learn from these verses the power of Christ to call men out of the world and make them disciples. So the lesson for you today is structured around four main headings. Four main headings. The Savior's Sermon, verse 13. The Sinner's Situation, verse 14a. The Savior's Summons, verse 14b. And finally, the Saint's Surrender, in verse 14b. Have you been converted? Let's start with the Savior's sermon. In verse 13, after Jesus healed the paralytic, he went out from the house in Capernaum and began teaching again by the seashore. Now, why 
would be the first question to ask. Why would Jesus leave the city and preach on the beach? Well, because as you recall the context, it was because the little house that the paralytic was lowered down into was not large enough to contain the massive crowds that were coming to see Jesus. Recall that in Mark's earlier accounts, he and his four friends, the paralytic's friends, were unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd. Verse 4. So Jesus leaves the house, he leaves the city limits, and he goes to a place where more people could hear him preach. And as he traveled along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Mark states that all people, all the people, were coming to him and he was teaching them. All the people implies it was the whole city was involved. Doesn't mean that every single person left their house, but most of them did. Now, what was the content of Jesus' teaching? Which, by the way, is the Greek word didasko, which we get the English word doctrine from. Jesus was didasko. He was giving them doctrine. Now, what doctrine was Jesus teaching? Well, again... We have to remember the context, right? The danger of having a little chunk exposited on a weekly basis is that we lose the context. So if we go back to Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, it says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. Jesus had one mission to preach the gospel. Also, in Mark 1.38, he reveals to us that preaching is what Jesus came for. So it's completely accurate and biblical to answer the question, why did Jesus come? It's it's good to say he came to preach. He came to preach the message of salvation. So after teaching and preaching the gospel in the open air to large crowds, Jesus made his way back into the city of Capernaum. And when he returned, He had a a divine appointment with a lost man who would become one of his 12 apostles, who would become the writer of the longest gospel. And that leads us to the second heading this morning, the sinner's situation, beginning in verse 14. Mark says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. Levi, who is of Jewish descent, is better known to us as Matthew. Matthew is the name that was given to him by Jesus after his conversion. In the same way that Saul became Paul. And Cephas became Peter. Mark says that, as he, that he was sitting in a tax booth, which implies that he was a tax collector. Now, if you were here for Equip today and last week, Aaron talked a little bit about this. But for those of you who weren't here, allow me to go a little bit deeper into this. The historical background of tax collecting is necessary to help us understand the significance of Matthew's 
vocation. It's, it's important to help us understand the radical nature of his conversion. As you know, due to the Roman occupation of Israel at this time in history, the Jewish people were required to pay taxes to Rome. Now, the tax system was not like ours. It was set up like this. Government officials would sell tax collection franchises to the highest bidder. Those who purchased a franchise were required to meet a minimum quota for Rome, but... Anything that they collected beyond the quota was theirs to keep. So, as you can imagine, since you, precious saints, have a a deep reach, excuse me, a deep, rich understanding of the doctrine of man, you know that that's a recipe for disaster. So that arrangement made tax collecting profitable. Anybody who loved money and had low ethical standards. Tax collectors uh, continually looked for ways to squeeze extra money out of people. And they were even aided in their collection by thugs and lowlifes. According to one commentator, they were also notorious for exploiting people. Charging more than was necessary or reasonable. And then... If you couldn't pay up, they would loan you at an astronomical interest rate. So the context, again, informs us that Matthew had his operation in Capernaum, which was the largest city on the Sea of Galilee and situated on a busy trade route. So Matthew's tax enterprise was extremely profitable. He was very well off. Keep that in mind when we get to the final point this morning. Luke 5.29 tells us that Levi hosted a great banquet for Jesus with a large crowd in attendance. What does that imply? If you can host a large banquet with lots of people, that means you you have some money in your pocket, right? However, what Levi gained in material wealth he lacked in terms of social respectability tax collectors were among the most hated and despised people in first century Israel namely Jewish tax collectors were seen as traitors to their own people because they extorted money from their fellow Jews in order to support the corrupt infrastructure of Rome which the Jews viewed as the foreign pagan oppressors. Not only did they profit Rome, these Jewish tax collectors, they lined their own pockets as well. And so this profession had consequences for a Jew. Here's what they were. If you were a Jewish tax collector... You were considered unclean. They were barred from attending synagogue. They were excommunicated. And they were prohibited from testifying in court. They had lost all credibility. In essence, they were considered the scum of society and the very worst of sinners for whom repentance was deemed impossible. 
they were viewed in a similar way. Our society might think of rapists and murderers, the lowest of the low. We'll see next week how common it was for uh, biblical writers to pair tax collectors with, quote-unquote, sinners. There were sinners comprising of all who were outside of God's favor. And then there was an altogether separate category of reprobates known as tax collectors. So all this is to say that Matthew wasn't just some aloof, professional, aimlessly living a quiet and religious life. Matthew was one of Israel's enemies. And he knew it. So for Jesus to call an outcast like Matthew was outrageous. It was an unthinkable act of social impropriety, especially to the religious hypocrites. But you all know Jesus. At least you've read about him. Does Jesus care about offending self-righteous people? Does he care or or show much sensitivity to the cultural norms? No. And that's one thing I love about him. He does not allow ridiculous taboos and soul-binding man-made traditions to prevent him from carrying out his father's work. Regardless of what people think, say, or do, despite the sinner's situation, the Savior is going to summon this lost, rejected person. And that leads us to the next point in our outline. The Savior's summons. The Savior's summons. And he said to him, follow me. Follow me. If you like to take notes or highlight in your Bible, that's one to highlight. Those two words, follow me, it's one word in the Greek. Actually, no, it's not. I was wrong about that one. It's two words. The verb and then me is separate. Now, since I already went down that road, I usually don't take a lot of time to go deep into the grammar here. But, but this summons given by Jesus is significant enough to unpack and go really deep into. Because the grammatical observations to be seen in this one verb has massive implications for your life. So try, 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 to, try to keep up with me. Try to track with me. I promise uh, I don't we'll do this a lot, okay? But this is important. Every Greek verb has a tense, voice, mood, person, and number. The verb rendered follow in verse 14 is in the present tense, active voice, imperative mood. Present tense is used when the writer portrays an action with no assessment to its completion. In other words, the action is ongoing, unceasing. Active voice signifies the subject is performing the verbal action. In this case, 
Levi is the doer of the action. You guys shock with me so far? And then the imperative mood, you've heard before, I think. I've, I've used that word before. The imperative mood expresses a command or an intention or an exhortation. Now here's the caveat. Holy dependence on possibility and volition. So if we synthesize all of those grammatical nuances down, here's what Levi understood when he heard the master say, follow me. You ready? He understood that it was an authoritative summons that he was responsible to obey right away with no intention of stopping. When Jesus saw Levi in a sinful situation and he summoned him, follow me, Levi fully knew what he was signing up for. He knew that the act of following Jesus was not an option, nor was it a polite invitation. He knew that following Jesus was not a temporary trial. It was a permanent commitment. And he knew that it was on him to definitively heed the call. Do you see how that has implications for your life? Now, before we can talk about how Jesus' summons applies to us, we need to understand what following Jesus entails. Okay? What does it mean? What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? Because we hear that phraseology all the time, don't we? I'm a follower of Jesus. We've got to follow Jesus. Right? For starters, the word literally means to attend, to accompany, or to go with. And it's used in two senses, right? In the physical sense, the verb simply means to escort or go along, right? If you, if you invite me over to your house and I say, I've never been there. I don't know how to get there. You say, well, just follow me, right? Just because I'm following you doesn't mean I'm following you. So then there's the spiritual sense. And there's much more, much more. To following somebody if it's used in a spiritual sense, right? Jesus wasn't looking for a traveling, traveling companion. Jesus wasn't desiring to have an assistant or a student. The Savior's summons was an individual call to abide in fellowship with him which starts with cleaving to him and believing trust and obedience. One commentator put it this way, following Jesus denotes a fellowship of faith as well as a fellowship of life. Sharing in his sufferings, not only inwardly, but outwardly if necessary. Such onward fellowship with Jesus, however, could not continue without inner moral and spiritual fellowship without a life resembling his. Here's the kicker. And a self-denying sharing of his cross. 
Did you guys get that last part? Following Jesus is a commitment to a life resembling his and a self-denying sharing of his cross. That is absolutely true. Did you know that the Christian religion is a self-denying religion? As opposed to a self-promoting religion. Did you know that's distinct? Every other religion except for biblical Christianity is a self-promoting religion. It's all, look what I have done, look what I have accomplished. But Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up my cross. We go to Mark 10, excuse me, Matthew 10, in order to help us grasp this concept and what it means to follow Jesus and how it relates to self-denial. Mark 10, let me read verses 34 to 39. Jesus in that passage, clearly explains what it means to follow him. Jesus said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace but to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a mother-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So you see how taking up your cross and following Jesus are intrinsically linked together? You can't talk about following Jesus without talking about taking up your cross. They're together. Mark uses the same language in, in, uh, in chapter 8, verse 34, which we'll get to in a few months from now, or a year. But Luke puts it in these words. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. Okay, so what does taking up your cross mean? It's important. It does not mean, metaphorically, carrying some burden in your life. Such as a strained relationship, a thankless job, or a physical illness. Again, what do I always say? It's my job to take you back to the first century. So don't read, pick up your cross, and think of a nice, handcrafted, painted, Beautiful cross. When I am teaching you right now about taking up your cross, don't look at that pretty little wooden cross up here that's used for decoration. 
you know, it's common for, especially girls, I guess, to wear like a really nice silver cross. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with that cross. And there's nothing wrong with nice wooden crosses for decoration. But our contemporary symbolism of, our, of the cross is not what Jesus' apostles would have imagined. To a person in the first century, the cross meant one thing and one thing only. It meant death by the most painful and humiliating means that human beings had developed to that point in history. In Jesus' day, an image of a cross meant torturous death. It was the Romans who forced convicted criminals to carry their own crosses to the place of crucifixion like Jesus did. So the bearing of a cross meant that carrying your own execution was an action. It meant that you would carry an execution device while facing ridicule along the way to death. So I, I have to be honest and tell you the truth. When Jesus says, take up your cross, take up your cross and follow me, he is saying you must be willing to die in order to follow Jesus. You must be willing to suffer. It's a call to absolute surrender. And it's not only absolute. It's also immediate. Now that notion leads us to the third main heading. Made main heading in our outline. The saints surrender. The saints surrender. End of verse 14. It simply says, And he got up and followed him. You know what we get from that little sentence? That his surrender was immediate proof of Levi's regeneration and conversion. Just seconds earlier, this man was an unclean, traitorous, despised human being. But when he got up and started to follow the master, it was a reflection of of a supernatural work that had taken place in his heart. And in that very moment, Matthew was transformed from a tax-collecting lover of money into a Christ-following lover of God. In other words, he was converted. Now remember earlier when I mentioned that Matthew's tax-collecting enterprise was extremely profitable? That means that he was well off financially. He was no doubt living a, living a luxurious life. He was well connected in his career field. He had a comfortable existence. He had friends. He was fully immersed into a dishonest profession. But, according to Luke 5, 28... 
when Matthew heard the call, the summons to follow Jesus, he left everything behind. He left it all. He sacrificed it all to be a genuine follower. He was willing to pick up his cross. He abandoned all the money, the power, the pleasures of the world. Why? Why would someone do that? Why would somebody leave his livelihood behind on the spot to follow a man he had never even met before? It's because he was converted. The former extortionist, traitor, and outcast was transformed into a disciple Jesus Christ. He left his old life for a new life with Jesus. That, my friends, is evidence of conversion. So I must ask, has this happened to you? Have you ever experienced genuine conversion? Like Matthew. Can you truly echo the words of Paul in Philippians 3? He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as dung. Scubalon. Feces. The rubbish translation is just to make it softer. He counted, if there weren't kids in here, I might use stronger language. But that was a very strong Greek term. He counted all of his accolades, all of his credentials, all of his education, all of his successes, all of his everything. When he met Christ on that road and was converted, he saw those things as worth less and feces. So do you want to know how to know if you're a true follower? Do you want to know how to know if you're a true convert? Do you know if you're a true convert if you have a genuine desire to serve Christ daily? You know if you're a genuine convert if you desire to obey him daily. If you desire to worship him daily, to glorify him daily, to sit at his feet via the written word daily. And to talk to him daily. There's another way to know if you're a true convert. You have a desire to evangelize and to function as a member of the body. True converts look for open doors to preach the gospel, and true converts employ their gift in the local church. So, if you lack gospel love for the lost, and if you have a low view of the local church, 
then you need to examine whether or not you've been truly converted. Far too many professing believers are like the disciple in Matthew 8 who went to Jesus and said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You guys remember that? Matthew 8. Lord, please permit me, before I follow you, please permit me to first go and bury my father. What a strange request. You know what he meant? He meant that he wanted to be near his father at the time of his death in order to obtain his inheritance. So this man was unwilling to do what Matthew did. He was unwilling to leave everything immediately and follow Jesus and take up his cross. He didn't want to take up his cross. He wanted his money. And so as you remember, maybe not, how did Jesus respond? Does he say, well, all right, son, I'll be here when you're ready. I just want to encourage you to think about that, right? He didn't say that. He didn't say, I'll wait until you're ready to make me Lord of your life. Here's what he said. Imperative. Follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead. Wow. Would have loved to see the look on that man's face when Jesus said that. He was in effect saying to this man, this superficial follower, he says, I am far more important than your earthly father, and I am requiring you to show me you love me more than he. So, brothers and sisters, the same requirement exists for all of us. As Christ followers, as converts, we must put loyalty and fidelity to Christ above everything else and everyone else, even if that demands sacrifice. Jesus wants followers, not professors. Jesus wants followers, not professors. One statement I heard very early on in my conversion was a very bold statement from a Baptist preacher. He asked the question, do you know what your profession of faith means? Absolutely nothing. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, right? But your profession means nothing. If it is not backed by a life of following Jesus, which entails a willingness to suffer and sacrifice worldly pursuits for the sake of the kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Amen? But one cannot seek the kingdom of God without first hearing the voice which spoke to Levi. He who called Levi and made him Matthew. Listen. Still lives. Still works. The same Jesus call sinners in the same way today. 
And if you're here today and you have not been converted, he's calling you right now. And he's commanding you to follow him. He's commanding you to take up your cross. Suffer with him. So as I've asked already, and I ask this with genuine tender concern, every single one of you, have you been converted? Have you been converted? Now in God's providence, we have some time right now, right here, to ponder those questions. Think about your conversion as we transition to our communion. There are few better opportunities to practice some soul-searching than immediately before partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, given the nature of the message and the length of time it's been since I gave some instruction on the communion. The Lord has prompted me to read a more lengthy passage from 1 Corinthians 11. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't spend too much of your quiet time in 1 Corinthians 11. <laughs> so that's even more of a reason we need to read it. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, whoever eats and drinks excuse me, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, children, please listen. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. You know what that means? In an unworthy manner? It means if you come to this table ritualistically, if you come to this table indifferently, if you come to this table unconverted, if you come to this table with a spirit of bitterness, the Bible says you shall be guilty. Verse 20, but a man must examine himself Examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, here's verse 30, we don't read this much. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That is a euphemism for death. And so, as Baptists, right, we believe that this is a memorial service. In no way, shape, or form is this the literal body and blood. We don't even believe that Christ is somehow mystically around or among the elements. But there is a deep and serious spiritual component to this ceremony. We know because in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, 
Paul says some people have died for taking the cup and the bread in an unworthy manner. So I say this out of love. If you're not following Jesus today, if you're not truly converted, if you have no humility to confess your sin, then there is no shame in abstaining. But for those of you who are converted, for those who you are truly following Christ, for those who you who who ask for forgiveness for your sin, come. And be reminded of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So with that said, I invite you to um, spend a minute or two in self-reflection, self-examination. Think about what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. This time I'll ask the men to come forward and, and, and dispense the elements. And as they dispense the elements, um, as you're seated, Danny will play some songs for us, and then we will partake together once everybody has received the elements.